Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, I tell the story of 21-year-old Carol Jenkins, who was murdered on September 16, 1968, in Martinsville, Indiana. Carol had recently begun a job selling encyclopedias door-to-door when she traveled to what was widely known as a sundown town. Less than four hours after she arrived, Carol was dead. She had been stabbed in the chest. For decades, her case remained unsolved, and the killer was unidentified. But 33 years later, a witness came forward and gave police the information they would need. But it was too late, and justice delayed for Carol and her family was justice denied. This is Carol's story. As you all know, it's Black History Month here in the United States, and so I wanted to tell the story of Carol Jenkins. For most people, the name Carol Jenkins isn't familiar, but for those who grew up and lived in Martinsville, Indiana, her unsolved murder haunted the town for decades. It took 33 years before anyone came forward about what happened that night. And by the time they did, it was too late for Carol or her family. Because of the lack of evidence and the lack of attention to this case initially, there was not enough to go on to make an arrest or to prove who was responsible. The person who eventually came forward provided valuable information, but it was too late to bring the perpetrator to justice. Carol Jenkins was born April 21st, 1947, in Franklin, Indiana. Her parents divorced when Carol was a baby, but a couple years later, her mom, Elizabeth Gooden, met a man named Paul Davis, and they got married when Carol was a toddler. The family lived in Rushville, Indiana, where Paul was originally from. Rushville is a small town about an hour away from Indianapolis. At the time, Rushville was a predominantly white community, but according to Paul, who had grown up there, racial tensions were low. Now, this could be attributed to the fact that Rushville was a relatively small and close-knit community. People had known each other for generations, and there was a sense of familiarity and acceptance that had been cultivated over the years. He told The New Yorker back in 2001 that he attended integrated schools and that he never had any real problems. Paul was a factory worker, 
He worked as a machine repairman for the Ford Mortar Company. I'm not sure if Elizabeth, Carol's mom, was working at the time, but eventually she and Paul would have five children together. Paul said that he thought of Carol as his own daughter and raised her alongside her five siblings, just like she was his own. Although there's no public information about Carol's real father, Paul said that Carol saw him once when she was a teenager. Now, there isn't any indication of what kind of relationship Carol had with him, but Paul said that Carol called him dad. During her teenage years, she attended Rushville High School, and she had big dreams of one day relocating to Chicago. Her goal was to become a model, so she wanted to move to a large city to start her career. But despite Carol's ambitions to pursue a career in modeling, she ultimately realized that the path to success in Chicago was not as easy as she had initially thought. And so she decided to stay in Rushville and started working at a local factory instead. The job was an assembly line job for a company that made large appliances. Carol continued working at the factory until a union strike forced the plant to close, leaving her looking for work. And eventually, she found a new job selling encyclopedias door-to-door. Now, door-to-door sales was a very different job from the factory that she was used to. She had to learn how to talk to people she didn't know and develop a sales pitch so that she could convince them to purchase an encyclopedia set. It was a big adjustment, but she was determined to make it work. However, being a young Black woman in a rural area during that time came with a set of risks. Although Rushville had been a safe place for Carol and her family, the towns surrounding it were not. Many of the towns were predominantly white, if not all white, and many were sundown towns. Sundown towns were communities where Black people were not allowed to live or visit after sunset. These towns were established in the late 19th and early 20th century as a way for white communities to maintain racial segregation and control. The name Sundown came from the warning signs that were posted at the town limits. It would say things like, nigger, don't let the sun go down on you here. Redlining, exclusionary zoning, and violent intimidation tactics were common practices in sundown towns. Black people who attempted to enter or live in these communities were often subjected to violence, lynchings, and other forms of racial terror. In many cases, the police and other authorities turned a blind eye to these acts of violence, perpetuating the culture of fear and exclusion. Now, despite the passage of civil rights legislation in the 1960s, many sundown towns remained. The state of Indiana itself had a long history of racism and at one point had more active Klan members than any other state. According to The New Yorker, in some towns, 40 to 50% of the white men living in small towns in Indiana were members of the Klan. Statewide, it was 30%. And so because of this, Black people were unable to freely travel around these small towns without risking their lives. The pervasive fear of violence and discrimination meant that it was impossible for Black people to live safely and securely in these areas. Carol knew those risks, but on her first day of work, when she and her coworkers got lost heading to a different town, they decided to just go to Martinsville, Indiana instead. 
and Carol went with them. Martinsville, however, was the sundown town at that time. Black people in that area knew not to go there. In many people's minds, it was the KKK headquarters. According to Paul, he grew up knowing that Martinsville was not a place that you wanted to visit. After a friend of his played basketball there and was called racist names by players and fans, Paul vowed that he would never go to Martinsville again. He believed that Carol was too afraid to tell her supervisors, who were also on the trip, that she was too afraid to go to Martinsville. It was, after all, like I said, her first day of work, and she didn't want to make a bad impression. Her parents, however, had no idea that Carol was going to Martinsville, but they said if they had known, they would have never allowed her to go. Carol and her coworkers arrived in Martinsville around 4.30 in the afternoon on September 16, 1968. Once the foursome got there, they decided that they were going to split up. They chose to work in an area that was close to downtown Martinsville. And the plan was to do some work in the area, and then they were going to meet back up at a gas station around 10 p.m. But three hours after arriving in Martinsville, at around 7.30 p.m., Carol knocked on the door of Norma and Don Neal. When they answered the door, Carol apologized for bothering them, but explained that she was scared. She said that three men had been following her in a dark sedan, and they were yelling at her, but she couldn't understand what they were saying. When Don Neal stepped out to see if he could see the car, he did see an unfamiliar light-colored sedan, not the one that Carol had described. He said he couldn't see anyone inside the car, but the lights were on. And so Don decided that he would approach the car to see if he could get a better look. And once he did, he was able to make a note of the license plate number. But the car drove off as soon as he turned to go back into the house. Carol was clearly shaken up, so the Neals invited Carol into their home and called the police. A policeman arrived at the home and spoke to Carol. According to the Neals, the conversation lasted about 10 minutes, and then the officer left. Carol had explained to the couple why she was in Martinsville and that her co-workers were also there. And so Mrs. Neal volunteered to walk with Carol around to see if they could find her co-workers. A friend of Mrs. Neal's also accompanied them, and they walked around for several minutes, but they never found any of her co-workers, and so they went back to the Neal's home. Now, the couple told Carol that she was welcome to stay at their home until it was time to meet up with her co-workers, but Carol declined the offer. At 8 p.m., around a half hour after she first arrived at their door, Carol thanked the Neals for their help and hospitality, and she left. Carol left the Neals' house to make her way to the designated meeting place where she was to meet her coworkers. Now, Carol might have felt that it was easier to just meet her coworkers at the designated place rather than staying with the Neals until that time. She also probably didn't want to be a burden and wanted to avoid the risk of overstaying her welcome. I mean, she appreciated their hospitality, but maybe she thought it was impolite to stay too long. And so Carol left and began walking towards the gas station. 
An hour after Carol left the Neal's home, her parents in Rushville received a devastating phone call. When Elizabeth, Carol's mom, answered the phone, she said the voice on the other end asked her if she was Carol Jenkins' mother. And when she said yes, they told Elizabeth that it was the coroner calling and that Carol had been found dead on the side of the road. But Elizabeth said that she thought that someone was playing a sick joke on her, and so she hung up the phone. But it wasn't a joke. When the coroner called back and spoke to Carol's sister, he told her what he had told her mother, that Carol was dead. At that moment, Elizabeth felt her world shatter as the reality of what had happened to her daughter began to sink in. Elizabeth initially was in denial and refused to believe that the phone call was real, as it seemed so far-fetched and unimaginable. I mean, the finality of the news that Carol was in fact dead was too much for her. It was the magnitude of the news that was so shocking that in Elizabeth's mind, she simply could not process it. Instead, she sought refuge in denial as a means to cope with the tragedy. But that night, Elizabeth, Paul, and the rest of Carol's family had no idea that the quest for justice and answers had only just begun, and that this journey would be a long one. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I always feel like I'm at my best when I get things accomplished that I set out to do. When you're at your best, you can do great things, but sometimes life gets you bogged down and you may feel overwhelmed or like you're not showing up in the ways that you want to. Working with a therapist can help you get closer to the best version of you because when you feel empowered, you're more prepared to take on everything that life throws at you. Therapy has so many crucial benefits that can help you through the ups and downs in life. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash girlgone to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash girlgone. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, 
all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. On September 16, 1968, Carol Jenkins had gone to Martinsville, Indiana with her co-workers to sell encyclopedias. But a few hours after she arrived, Carol knocked on a neighbor's door asking for help. She said that she was being followed and that the men in the car were yelling at her. But after declining their offer to stay, Carol went back outside. And less than an hour later, Carol was dead. After leaving the Neal home on the evening of September 16th, Carol began to walk back towards the location where she was supposed to meet her coworkers. But almost an hour after she left, near a busy intersection, a teenage boy who lived nearby found Carol lying on the ground where she had collapsed. The boy ran to a restaurant that was close by so that he could call the police. At first, no one could tell what had happened. It had been raining and it was dark, and so according to the police who first arrived at the scene, they didn't know why Carol had collapsed. When the ambulance arrived to transport Carol to the hospital, she was still alive, but she died shortly after arriving. It was then that they discovered what really happened to Carol. Once they removed the wool coat that she had been wearing, they saw that she had a single puncture wound to the chest. And they quickly realized that the stab wound was the cause of her death and that it had pierced her heart. The wool coat had been concealing the wound and it wasn't until they removed it that they were able to discover the truth. This was a homicide. But investigating this murder would be difficult for many reasons. The first reason was the fact that Martinsville didn't have a detective in their small department. And so the murder would have to be handled by the Indiana State Police and the sheriff in the county. However, by the time they were notified of the homicide, critical evidence had already been lost. Until Carol was examined at the hospital, it was unclear that a crime had occurred. And so the crime scene wasn't secured. A state police detective who began working on the case said that he found about 50 people hanging around the crime scene when he arrived. He said people began handing him Carol's belongings, like her glasses and a notebook that had been found a few blocks away. According to reports, the unsecured crime scene had everything to do with the fact that they did not know that a crime had occurred. And by the time that the state police and sheriff got involved, it was too late to secure the scene, and whatever evidence had existed was either washed away or contaminated. As the police began investigating the murder, they spoke to the Neals, 
And investigators learned that Carol had been followed that night that she was murdered by what she described as a dark sedan. They were able to track down that car and discovered that a teenage boy and his friend had been driving the car. And they admitted that they had followed Carol, but they denied yelling at her and said that they had nothing to do with her attack. Eventually, police declared that the teenagers were not responsible. Don Neal had also told police that he had actually seen a light-colored sedan that evening. However, even though he had tried to take a mental note of the license plate number, by the time he spoke to the police, he had forgotten some of the plate, and so they were unable to track down the car or its driver. It didn't take long for Carol's murder to make local and national newspapers, but there was very little information about what happened and no evidence, and the people in Martinsville refused to talk. A reporter who worked the story told The New Yorker that they went to Martinsville to speak to people about the murder and find out what they knew. And he said that he learned quickly that no one was going to tell him anything. Quote, the town became a clam. I got the impression real quickly that there was something funny. I began knocking on doors to see if anyone had seen this gal, and I got nothing from the townspeople. After a while, we learned that nothing was going to happen, and even if somebody knew something, they were afraid to talk. They really didn't want outsiders coming in. It cooled and cooled until it was futile. So we ended up just making routine calls, and when you called, you got the same standard, the investigation is continuing. You knew if anything was going to happen, it would have to be anonymous. After a while, the thing just petered out he said in that interview. With people in the town refusing to speak about what happened, Carol's murder investigation became very cold early on. But six weeks after the murder, the Indianapolis chapter of the NAACP sent a letter to the Department of Justice asking them to investigate Carol's murder. The letter stated that, quote, Morgan County has historically been associated with the Ku Klux Klan-like activities. The letter also highlighted the fact that the local authorities had failed to make any progress in the investigation, and it raised serious questions about their commitment to justice. The NAACP was concerned that due to the county's history of racism and the lack of action by the local authorities, that justice would not be served and that the murderer would not be found. And so they called on the Department of Justice to investigate the case. But the DOJ never got involved in Carroll's case. However, the NAACP's letter for many Black people in the area solidified what they already believed to be true, that Carroll's murder was racially motivated. In the months following her murder, police were unable to arrest anyone. There were, however, at least a few suspects, including a construction worker whose whereabouts police couldn't account for during the time of the murder, and they considered him a prime suspect, but he had left the state shortly after the murder, and then he was killed in a shootout. 
The other suspect was a man who owned an auto repair shop. Now, Carol's journal that had been found a few blocks away from the crime scene was found outside of the shop. And so it led police to wonder whether that was a coincidence or whether he had something to do with Carol's murder. Both men, along with several others, were given polygraph tests, but no charges were ever filed. Over the next several years, there were many rumors about who killed Carol. The belief was that there were people in Martinsville who knew exactly who killed Carol, but no one in the town was talking. In June 2000, almost 32 years after Carol was murdered, things began to change, and her mother Elizabeth received a telephone call anonymously from someone who said they knew the name of the person who killed her daughter. When Elizabeth told Paul what the caller had said, he decided that he needed to hire a private investigator. And so he used his retirement savings to do so. Now, once the Indiana State Police learned about Paul's efforts, they suddenly decided to assign two cold case investigators to reinvestigate Carol's murder. And then, a year and a half later, in November 2001, investigators received an anonymous letter that outlined the identity of the killer. And that person's name was Kenneth Clay Richmond. According to the letter, Richmond's daughter, Shirley, had been present at the time of the murder and had confided in them about what happened. This was a huge break, and it prompted investigators to follow up on the lead. And after conducting a few interviews, they were able to corroborate the story in the anonymous letter. Now, although Shirley was then a seven-year-old girl who was now in her 40s, investigators knew that they needed to interview her and see what she knew about Carol's murder. and. When they did, they learned about the details of that terrifying night almost 33 years later. Shirley told investigators that on the night of September 16, 1968, her father and another unidentified man were driving through Martinsville when they spotted Carol. Shirley was in the back seat. The men began to follow Carol and began yelling racial slurs at her. Shirley said that Carol, sensing that she was in danger, began to run. But her father and the other man caught up to her. And her father began to chase Carol down the street. Then the men attacked her. The unidentified man held Carol down while Kenneth Richmond stabbed her in the chest with a screwdriver. After the attack, the men got back into the car, and Shirley said that they were laughing and joking. Then her dad offered her $7 not to say anything. And for years, she didn't, until she decided to confide in her sister-in-law, who then, 15 years later, ultimately wrote the letter to police that led them to Shirley and her dad. After over 30 years, 
police finally had a witness that was willing to come forward. Armed with the information that Shirley had given them, police went back over the case files and re-interviewed witnesses and people in the town. They also interviewed people who were close to Kenneth Richmond, including his ex-wife. And what they learned was that Kenneth had a history of violence and was a well-known racist with ties to the KKK. On May 8th, 2002, Kenneth Richmond was arrested and charged with the murder of Carol Jenkins. At the time, he was 70 years old and living in a nursing home. He was also suffering from cancer, and his health was quickly declining. When investigators spoke to Richmond, he denied having anything to do with Carol's murder. But the evidence that police had was enough to charge him. However, Kenneth Richmond would never get his day in court. In August 2002, a judge declared him incompetent to stand trial because he at the time only had weeks to live. He was then moved to a mental health facility where he was going to be evaluated in 90 days. But in September 2002, four months after his arrest, Kenneth Richmond died. The other man who was alleged to be with Richmond was never identified. And in 2019, Carol's murder case was reopened and remains open as of today. But in the years since Kenneth Richmond was identified as Carol's killer, the city of Martinsville has tried hard to rectify its racist past. In the town, there is now a memorial dedicated to Carol and a park named for her. The city also issued an apology to the Davis family. It has now been 54 years since Carol Jenkins went to Martinsville, Indiana to sell encyclopedias. She was only 21 years old at the time and she had her entire life stolen from her for simply being black in the wrong town at the wrong time. The racial terror that Carol and so many others faced in sundown towns across this country is something that we should never forget. And if that makes you feel uncomfortable, it should. Because there are countless other nameless, faceless people who, like Carol, had their lives cut short too. Although police know that Kenneth Richmond was their killer, they also know that he had an accomplice who has never been identified. And so her case remains open for now. And just like Shirley came forward, there might be someone else who will come forward and identify the other killer so that this case can finally be closed and Carol can rest in peace. Her family never got the justice that they deserved. Her killers got to live their lives, but telling her story and keeping her memory alive helps people to at least never forget Carol Jenkins. Even 54 years later, someone knows something. And so if you have any information about the other suspect 
end Carol's murder, please contact the Indiana State Police. May Carol Jenkins rest in peace. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with a brand new story. In the meantime, make sure you follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.